Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So Romans 8, 31-39, but before we read Romans 8, 31-39, I want to go back and take you on a little bit of review of where we've been and look at some key verses. So look at Romans 5, 1. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Okay, look at Romans 5, 8. God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so we have peace with God. We're recipients of God's love. Okay, chapter 6, verses basically... Well, verse 4 and 5, actually look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. We've been baptized into a death. We have newness of life. So we have peace with God. We have salvation. We have newness of life. Romans 8, 1, what does it say? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then what we looked at last week, let's just look at verses 28 through 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So there's a lot of things in Romans that God has done for us. Last week, he, he predestined us, He called us, He chose us, He saved us, He sanctified us, He justified us, He made us alive, there's no condemnation, we're saved, all of these glorious things. And so when we get to verse 31, Paul starts with a question, okay? So Romans 8, 31, what shall we say to these things? Okay, what are these things that Paul's talking about. What shall we say to these things? I take it to be everything he's talked about starting all the way back in chapter 5. Not just the preceding things he talked about. We looked at last week about predestination and calling and justification, all those things. Ultimately, what he's saying is everything that God has done to save you, let's just stop and ask the question, what? Paul's almost speechless. What, what can we say? So what's the, what's the rhetorical answer to what can we say to what Jesus has done for us? We are blown away. Yeah, there, there's not much. I mean, so question, have, are you amazed and humbled that God would set his love on you in eternity past? Are you amazed that God predestined you to be His child? Are you amazed that God called you out of darkness? Are you amazed that God justified you? Are you amazed that God would one day glorify you? What can we say to these things? And really the answer is, we are so thankful that you did this for us, Jesus. Okay, now Paul is going to ask, 
four rhetorical questions in nature. Now, what's a rhetorical question? Is it meant to be answered? He's going to answer it for us. But he's going to ask some rhetorical questions, okay? And these questions are meant to help us think about the nature of our salvation. So here's question number one. If God is for us, who can be against us? Look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. Now, when you think about the word against, do you want God to be against you? (laughs) Okay. When you read the Old Testament, and you think about those pagan nations that came against Israel, oftentimes God would make the statement that he came against those nations. So, for example, Babylon, the great pagan nation, God said in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 31, Behold, I'm against you, O proud one, declares the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come, this time when I will punish you. I'm against you. That's what he says to Babylon. What does God say to Egypt? Ezekiel 29.3, speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for, for myself. I'm against you, God says. Now, God even came against Israel at times, not just the pagan nations. In Ezekiel 5.8, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I even, I am against you. He's talking to Israel and I will execute judgments in your midst and the sight of the nations. And then in Ezekiel 14, 7-8, For anyone of the house of Israel, or the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his hearts, and putting stumbling blocks of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. And what will God say? I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people and you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, do you want God to be against you? No. Question, if God is for us, you want God to be for you, right? Okay, if God is for you, the question is who can come against you? Now let's just ask the question, who comes against us? Who wants to come against us? The devil. We'll talk about him in just a minute. Other people that want to do what? Persecute us. People that want to retaliate against us. People that want to destroy our message. Listen to some of these words about people that would come against us. I mean, we are promised... That doesn't sound very good, does it? We are promised that people will come against us. Okay? Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. People are going to come against you and persecute you and say false things about you. People are going to come against you. What does Jesus say in John 15, 18 through 20? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The world's going to hate you. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, will be. 1 Peter 4, 12-16 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted... For the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God in that name. You're going to suffer for being a Christian. People are going to come against you. People are going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. And then one more just to make it more fun here because this is great news, right? First John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So, here's a paradox. Are people going to come against you? Are people going to persecute you? Are people going to hate you? Okay. But what does Paul say there? If God is for us, who can be against us? Is there really anybody that can really come against us? Now, they may revile you and they may say false things against you and they may persecute you, but ultimately, can they do you harm? Why? Because God is for you. Now, what's Paul's answer to this question? Paul's answer to this question is the cross. Look at what he says there in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what did God do on our behalf? How is God for us? What has God done to be for us and not against us? He did not spare His own Son. Jesus is God's own Son. Jesus is the one and only unique Son of God. You think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave who? His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You see that same wording in 1 John 4, 9-10, and this is love. In in this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God sent Jesus, but notice the wording Paul uses. God did not spare. Spare His Son. Okay, that's an interesting word. What does it mean that God did not spare his son. What did God did not spare from? What, what did, when you spare somebody something, what does that mean? They don't get what they're, they don't get what they deserve. Okay. So what did Jesus deserve? Not punishment. Was Jesus perfect? Okay. Who deserved punishment? Us. So who should have been spared? Jesus, yeah, uh, well, yeah, Jesus, yeah, you probably, yeah, who should have been spared? Jesus, 
Who should have gotten the punishment? Us. But God did not spare Jesus, which means that the Father did not withhold punishment, but inflicted it upon Christ in our place. Jesus bore the wrath reserved for us. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read Isaiah 53, 4-10, but you can go read that. That's a prophecy of the Old Testament where all of the punishment and the piercing and the transgression and the chastisement and being crushed, all, all those things came upon Jesus because God did not spare Jesus. Jesus took the punishment we deserved. And not only that, that's the negative, God did not spare Jesus, but look at what else it says there in verse 32. He who did not spare his own, his own son, but gave him up. He gave up his son for us. It's a very interesting word, gave up. It literally means to hand over, to deliver over. It reminds us that the crucifixion was the sovereign plan of God. Who killed Jesus? <laughs> it's a trick, trick, trick question. Who literally killed Jesus? Was Pilate involved? Okay. Were Roman soldiers involved? Were the Jewish leaders involved? Was Judas involved? Okay. But who ultimately orchestrated the entire event so that it would happen? God. Okay. So Acts 2.32, God delivered up Jesus to be crucified. This Jesus delivered up, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was the definite plan of God for Jesus to be killed. Acts 4.27-28, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, Octavius Winslow, he's an older guy, said this, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. That's a good quote. <laughs> he delivered up Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God did not spare Jesus, but gave Him up for us all. Can I give you another quote from John Murray, South African theologian from the last century from the 20th century he said this it is only as the ordeal of calvary is viewed to this perspective of wrath vicariously born wrath executed with the sanctions of unrelenting justice and wrath endured when the hosts of darkness were released to wreak the utmost of their vengeance that we shall be able to apprehend the wonder and taste the sweetness of a love that passes knowledge love eternally to be explored but eternally inexhaustible that's a mouthful. <laughs> but what he's saying is, when we stop and think about what Jesus suffered in our place, it's the deepest expression of love that we could ever even imagine. So, who 
can be against us if God is for us? And what's the answer to the rhetorical question? Nobody. Now, people will come. They will revile you. They'll persecute you. They may malign you. They, they may come against you. But ultimately, what's your ultimate security? Jesus died for you. God did not spare his son, but gave him up for you. And think about this. Because God did that, will he not also give you graciously all things? Look at the end of verse 32. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Because of the cross, God can give you all things. Now, what is, that? What is the all things again? I think it's the all things that we just talked about. Everything related to your salvation, God gives you. Think of it this way. On the cross, Jesus won or paid for everything you would ever need in your Christian life from first to last. God will graciously give you everything you need. And Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.3. What does 2 Peter 1.3 say? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us all things. So, this is the week before Christmas. What's the greatest gift God has given to us? These, so, the question is, God has graciously given us all things. Now, what are these all things that we've been looking at? Isn't it great to be predestined before the foundation of the earth? Yes. Isn't it great that God called you out of darkness into His marvelous light? Yes. Isn't it great that God justified you freely? Yes. Isn't it great that God's going to glorify you on that final day? Yes. Those are great things. But what's the greatest gift? Jesus. Is it the things that God gives you in your salvation or is the greatest gift Christ Himself? It's Christ Himself. All those things are blessings that only come from Christ. The greatest gift is Jesus Himself, God's own Son. So that's the first question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And what's the answer to the proverbial rhetorical question? Nobody, because of the cross. Now, here's the second question. Okay, second question that Paul brings up. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Okay, we see this in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, who do we know who he's talking about? Who are the elect? He just told us, we looked at this last week, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So we are called the elect because we have been predestined. But what's the question here? Who shall bring? Any charge. Now, this is courtroom language. And shall bring, shall bring, is in the future tense. Okay, it's a future tense verb. In the future, who's going to bring a charge? So this, this makes us think about final judgment. So think of it this way. On the day of judgment, when you're standing there before the great white throne, who's going to bring a charge against you? In other words... Can somebody come up and say, what are you doing here, Christian? You're not supposed to be here in heaven. Who's going to bring it? And what's the answer to the question? Can anybody bring a charge against you? Trick question. 
Can anybody bring a charge against you that will stick? Are, are people going to, is somebody going to bring a charge against you? Okay. Now, sometimes your conscience, your own conscience can accuse you. Sometimes when you sin and maybe commit a grievous sin that bothers you, you may, your conscience may condemn you to where you think to yourself, I've sinned so far beyond God's grace, I must have lost my salvation or put myself outside His love. And I, I can't be forgiven. So your own conscience can sometimes accuse you. But who's the main one that accuses you? Satan. Satan can accuse us of sinning and not being worthy of God's grace. Do you know what the word Satan means? Accuser. His name means accuser. Now, Revelation 12, 9 through 10 tells us some definitions of Satan. Revelation 12, 9 through 10. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, so what's he doing now? And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down and who accuses them day and night before our God. What's Satan doing? He's accusing us day and night before the throne of God because he's the accuser. So is Satan bringing charges against you? What will Satan make you think at times? You're not worthy. You're, you're a scumbag. <laughs> you're not worth anything. How could God forgive you? And what's the answer? Look at what Paul says. It is God who justifies. So what's the answer to the question? These accusations may come, but God's made a legal verdict. God has, God has justified you. Now, we've spent tons of time on the doctrine of justification by faith alone because it's all through, starting back in chapter 3, taking us all the way through. But this is kind of a quote from Isaiah 50, verses 8 through 9, an Old Testament passage. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who's going to declare me guilty? Well, they can come all they want, but God is the one that's going to vindicate me. So here's the reality. <laughs> What's the reality? Do we deserve God's wrath? Are we guilty? Are we not worthy? Okay. Satan could have a valid charge against us if we were still in our sins. If, if we were non-Christians and Satan accused us, would his accusation stick? Yeah, because we haven't been declared not guilty yet. But what happened? What did Who justified who? It is God who justifies. Did we clean ourselves up? Did we somehow raise ourselves to spiritual life? No. Remember what happens, guys? The, the drawing here? When you 
your sin goes to Jesus and his righteousness goes to you. So your sin's gone to Jesus and his righteousness has gone to you. And so when God looks down upon you, God doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees the righteousness of Christ and God can make that verdict. God can justify you. God can say not guilty. So if God has said not guilty, can any charge stick? Why? Because God said not guilty. Now, is God going to change his mind? Is God going to come back after the fact and say, ah, I'm just joking, you were, you were really guilty. I'm just kind of playing a big trick on you. Satan have free reign. No, Paul's saying, if somebody, if Satan himself comes and brings a charge against you, it cannot stick because God has justified you. Okay. So first question, who can come against you? Nobody. Who can bring a charge against you? Okay, now here's the third question, and this gets even stronger. It's one thing to bring a charge. It's one thing to come against you. It's one thing to bring a charge. Okay, the third one is, okay, who is to condemn? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Now, what does condemn mean? That's actually to pass the sentence that you are guilty and send you to hell. To be condemned is eternal torment in hell. That's, that's a scary thing. Who, who's to do that? Okay. So the question is, who, who can do that? Well, sometimes our heart condemns us. Have you ever had your heart play games with you? Look at 1 John 3, 19-21. It's an interesting passage. It says, By this we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Sometimes your heart can make you feel like, put it this way, sometimes your heart makes you feel like you should be in hell. Is that a weird way of putting it? Your heart makes you feel guilty. And God knows your heart. He knows everything. And so what has God done to change your heart? Even if your heart at times feels like you're guilty, what has God done to your heart? He's changed your heart. He's made you new. And so the question is, because God has saved you, nobody can condemn you. Now, Paul gives us here the gospel in a nutshell. He, again, he keeps going back to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So notice what he says here in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Okay, So Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We all know that. Okay, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Force written, cursed was everyone who's hanged on a tree. Okay, Paul says more than that, he was raised from the dead. So Christ died, he was raised from the dead. We know that. 1 Corinthians 15.1-4, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And here's what Paul says is of the first importance. I delivered to you as of first importance. Okay, Paul, what's the most important thing you can tell us? Here's what Paul tells us. Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scripture, he was raised, or he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Jesus Christ died, more than that, was raised. Just, just, a, just a side note, two, two verses from 1 Corinthians 15, 14 about the resurrection. 
If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, we'd have a useless faith. And not only that, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So Jesus, yeah, so the resurrection is important. Okay, we often talk about the death, burial, and resurrection. But what did Jesus do after he rose from the grave? Where did he go? He ascended into heaven. Okay, that's what Paul says. Who is at the right hand of God? So Jesus ascended to be at the right hand of God. So where's Jesus right now? At the right hand of God. Do you guys know the most quoted Old Testament verse that's quoted in the New Testament? I'll give it to you. It's Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So think about it this way. Because Jesus died for our sins and he rose again, God vindicated Jesus by raising him to that position of honor. Being at the right hand is a position of honor. Back in that culture, when you were at the right hand of the king, it was a position of honor. So Jesus being at the right hand means he's there in a position of honor. He's there in a position of king. He's there ruling and reigning, and he's at the right hand. Um, let's just skip a few of these passages. You can read Ephesians 1, 19-20, but Hebrews 1, 3 is a good one. Um, Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe. Think about this. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. After He finished the work, He's, he's at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 12, 2, Keep your eyes on Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So question, what is Jesus doing at the right hand of God right now? Is He just kind of sitting there, hey, this is cool being next to God. I think I'll kind of, God, when are you going to send me back down there to, to, to end things? <laughs> I know it's coming soon. I don't think so. What does Paul say there? He's interceding for us. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is interceding for us? What does it mean to intercede? He's praying for us. He's representing us. Think about a courtroom. When you go to court, most of the time, hopefully you haven't had to go to court, but do you represent yourself in court of law? Do they, do they recommend you representing yourself? Who do they want you to have? Legal counsel, so that you don't say something stupid or you incriminate yourself because the lawyers know what they're doing. Okay, So when your conscience accuses you or Satan accuses you, who's there as your defense attorney representing you before God? Jesus. Okay, He's interceding on your behalf. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Consequently, he's again talking about Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession. And then um, I like 1 John 2 1. One of these days, I'm going to preach 1 John because he kind of drives me crazy because sometimes I read 1 John, I'm like, what in the world are you saying, John? 
you like make no sense. One, one, you'll say one thing in a sentence that's like, it doesn't make any sense. So, so here's, a, here's one of these examples. First John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, that sounds good. What does John say? Don't sin. Then the next sentence. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So don't sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate there, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay? So here's the question. Let's look at the, this is the third question that Paul asks. What's the first question? If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer? Nobody can be against us. Second, who can bring any charge against us? Nobody. Not even the devil. It can't stick. Third question, who can condemn us? Nobody. Why? Because Jesus died, was buried, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is indeed interceding for us. So go back to the very beginning of this chapter. Okay. What does Romans 8.1 say? The very beginning of, chapter, of this chapter that we've been looking at. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. So who can condemn? Nobody. Why? There's no condemnation. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you're saved, if you have a relationship with Jesus, there is no condemnation. Okay. So here's the ultimate final question that Paul asks, this rhetorical question. Here's, here's question number 35. I mean, verse 35. Not question 35. That'd be a lot of questions. Fourth question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the biggie. Who can come against us? Who can accuse us? Who can condemn us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now, Paul could have just stopped there and said, Nothing. But what does he do? Look at this list he gives. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So he's pretty specific in some things. So, if you, so if somebody does come against you and persecute you, can they separate you from the love of Christ? If you go through extreme poverty and distress and hunger, can that separate you from Christ? If they kill you, can that separate you from Christ? Now, interestingly, Paul experienced firsthand some of these things that he's listing off. Listen to Paul's biography. <laughs> You'd like, like as a pastor, you think, oh, this will be a great life. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28. He says this, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at the sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on my anxiety for all the churches. Now that's a life. And Paul says, listen, I've lived some of this. 
I've been persecuted. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been abandoned. And not only that, I got all these crazy churches like Corinth that I have to worry about. I got a daily anxiety for all these churches. But one thing I am positively sure of is that I'm never going to be separated from the love of Christ. Christ is always going to be there for me. And then he makes an interesting statement there in verse 37. And we sing this on Sunday morning, right? We are more than conquerors. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So verse 37, we are more than... No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Okay, do you guys want to know what the Greek word for conqueror is? You know it because you see it all the time. One of the most popular sports brands ever. It's not Under Armour. <laughs> it's Nike. Okay, Nike or Nikeo, Nike. Nike means conquer. Okay. But it says, okay, let me just show you what the Greek word is. Okay, this is what the word is in the original language. Hyper Nike. Are you a hyper Nike? <laughs> more than, over and above. You are more than conquerors through Christ. If these things come against you, if these people come against you, if these situations come against you, if these sicknesses come against all these things that come against you, you are more than conquerors. It's very interesting. This term conqueror shows up in the book of Revelation. At the end of every seven church, so just turn real quick to Revelation. Keep your finger in, in Romans, but just turn to Revelation real quick. We're not going to read all of this, but remember the seven churches in Revelation at the beginning there? At the end of every church. So it starts with the church of Ephesus in chapter 2 of Revelation. Jesus always says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then He always says this, To the one who conquers. So look at verse chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, same word, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, the church in Pergamum. Go down to... Um, da, 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 da. Yeah, does it say conquers there? Yeah, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him the white stone. Um, then you go down to the church in Thyatira. Does it talk about conquerors there? Yeah, verse 26. The one who conquers... And then you got the church in Sardis. Anyway, you can see this. In all the seven churches, there's this whole refrain of those that conquer. And so when we think about conquerors, what Paul is saying is that nothing in all of this world can come against you Hell can come against you. Satan can come against you. Your own heart can come against you. Persecution can come against you. Famine can come against you. Sword, nakedness, all these things, natural disasters, anything you can think of can come against you, but it will not separate you from the love of Christ because you're more than conquerors. 
And notice what he says there. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, that word loved us is in the aorist tense, which means at a point in time. What was the one point in time where God showed the greatest love for us? The cross. Romans 5.8. You don't have to turn there because I got it memorized, but if you want to turn there, make sure I quote it correctly. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is tying everything back to the cross and the resurrection. Why can no charge come against you? The cross and the resurrection. Why is God for you and no one can come against you? The cross and the resurrection. Jesus is in heaven interceding for you. Jesus loved you through the cross. You're more than conquerors. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so Paul could have just answered the rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul could have said nothing and then ended it. He'd be right, wouldn't he? <laughs> nothing. Nothing on this earth. But what does he say? I'm going to list all the things you can think of. And then he goes a bit further. So look at verse 38. He says, I'm sure. I am positive. I am sure. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing can separate us. And then he gives five pairs of things you could possibly think of. That could, okay, let's think about some things that could separate us from God. Okay. We've already talked about persecution. We've talked about being naked and being uh, killed. We've talked about being shipwrecked. Let, let's, let's, let's expand this to something even greater. Okay, so Paul gives these five things that we could think of that might possibly separate us from God's love. So here's pair number one. I am sure that neither death nor life. Can death and life separate you? Okay, number two, the second pairing. I am confident, I am sure that neither death nor angels or rulers. Now, angels could be like the heavenly angels. Who are the rulers? Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness and cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places can all the powers of hell separate you from god can death separate you from god okay paul says okay let's think about the present and the future as you say things present nor things to come and then number four what does he say height and depth nor height nor depth now as I was thinking about these things he was writing, I, I immediately thought about Psalm 139. Height, depth, past, future, present. Listen to Psalm 139, 1-8. Psalm of David. O Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted, and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? 
Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Where can you go to, to get away from God anywhere on the world? Nowhere. Where can you go to get away from God's love for those of you that are in Christ Jesus? Nowhere. Okay. And then Paul just ends it. What does he say? Nor anything else in all creation. And to my Armenian friends that believe you can lose your salvation, that includes you yourself. <laughs> you yourself can't even make yourself get out of God's love. So this is one of the greatest verses on eternal security of the believer. Let's ask the question. Has Paul made it very clear? If you're truly saved, can you lose that salvation? Nothing in all the universe can separate us from God's love. Who chose you before the foundation of the world? The Father. Who died on the cross for your sins? Jesus. At a point in time, who called you and caused you to be born again and gave you new life? Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit all three worked together to bring about your salvation. Now think about it this way. If God started your salvation in eternity past and He called you and He saved you, would He leave it up to you to kind of finish it up or somehow fall out of His grasp? So let me give you some verses that teach the eternal security of the believer. I know we believe this at Emmanuel, but sometimes you come across people that think you can lose your salvation or somehow... Um, your salvation is not secure. If this verse weren't enough, I think this verse kind of nails it for me because Paul's like, nothing else in all creation. If God got you in, He's going to make sure you stay in. Okay? But let me just give you a couple of more verses just, just to put the nail in the coffin of those that may think that you, you can lose it. John 6, 37-39. This is Jesus speaking. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never, never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given, but raise it up on the last day. Is Jesus going to ever cast you out if you come to him? Is he going to lose you? Okay, question, why? Well, go to John 10, 27-30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never, no, not ever perish. That's the original Greek. It's called a double negative in the original language. They will never, no, not ever perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you realize you're in a double grip? You're in Jesus' hand. You're in the Father's hand. No one can snatch you out. If somebody's going to come snatch you out, whose hands do they have to go through? Jesus and the Father, okay? And Jesus says, I give you eternal life, you'll never perish. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7, 9, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 7 through 9. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's going to sustain you to the end? God. Do you sustain yourself to the end? 
God does. And He's faithful to present you on that final day. Okay? Who has God given in your heart to secure your future inheritance? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. When you got saved, who came and lived inside of you? Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what? You're going to get heaven. So for you to not get heaven, what has to happen to that deposit? He has to leave you, or that deposit has to somehow be null and void. Does the Holy Spirit become null and void? Does the Holy Spirit leave you? No. All right, Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. This is another thing where Paul says, I'm sure of this. Same wording he used there in verse 38. I'm sure. Of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will bring it to completion. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Surely do what? Present you blameless at the coming of Christ. He is going to do that. Okay, 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Is your inheritance waiting for you? What kind of inheritance is it? It's imperishable, undefiled. Where is it? It's kept in heaven for you. It's on reserve for you. God won't lose your reservation. It's like you're going to show up in heaven and God's like, oh, I lost your reservation. What are you doing here? No, it's kept there for you. And then one last verse, Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Okay. Let me give you a wonderful quote by Charles Spurgeon that brings this whole thing to a close. Here's what Chucky e. Spee, here's what Chuck Spurgeon said. I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in His dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah, nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of His elect and chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross, nor can I comprehend the gospel which lets saints fall away after they're called, and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel I abhor. I hate it. If ever it should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. If you could lose your salvation, you would. How often? A thousand times a day, if it was up to you. So Spurgeon, tell us how you really feel. 
So what Spurgeon is saying here is the gospel is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, okay? Bear gospel. The historical reality, historical events of Jesus' death on the cross, His burial in a tomb, His resurrection three days later, that's the gospel. Now, there are wonderful truths that undergird the gospel and give it a fullness. I had one pastor explain it this way. The gospel is the house. But what do you need to make a house work? You need plumbing and electricity and a foundation. Do you often see that? When you go turn on the sink, do you see the plumbing? When you go turn on your light, do you see the... But, but those are needed, right, for you to function, okay? So there are some things that are behind the scenes that are underneath that push the gospel forward. They're not the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But these truths undergird the gospel. What are these things? Well, Charles Spurgeon kind of listed off some of them, not all of them, but some of them. He says, the gospel is... We're not preaching the gospel unless we preach justification by faith alone instead of works. Would you agree with him? You're not preaching the true gospel if you are preaching, the, if you don't talk about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that it's not by works, it's by God's grace. Okay. He says, we're not really truly preaching the gospel if we don't talk about the sovereignty of God and His grace to make us alive in Christ and cause us to be born again. If we don't talk about God's grace and His sovereignty and His, His causing us to be born again. He says, we're really not talking about the gospel unless we talk about the unconquerable electing love of the Father. And he says, we're not really talking about the gospel if we don't talk about the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for His people. And then he says, let me just tell you what kind of gospel I hate. <laughs> I hate a gospel that says you can lose your salvation. <laughs> We're not really preaching the gospel unless we teach the eternal security of the believer. Now, that's Spurgeon. You can take him or leave him. You can agree with him or disagree with him. I think it's a profound statement that he brings there together about eternal security. So we get to the end of this glorious chapter. We've spent almost five, I think four or five weeks in chapter 8. And it ends on a crescendo. There is nothing in all of the universe that can separate you from the love of Christ. You are in His grip. You're in His hand. You are in His solid grasp, and nothing can take you out of that. Not even yourself. Not even Satan. And that gives us great cause to rejoice and to be thankful and to be joyful for our salvation. And I didn't realize I was going to get done this early tonight. <laughs> Unless there's a lot of questions, comments, or snide remarks, we may be done a half an hour early, which means I'm going to... Some of you just have to hang out in the foyer and talk about this. So any, any final questions? Yeah, Shauna. Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. What does that mean, at the day? 
at the day, that means when Christ comes back, on that final day. The Bible talks about the day, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the coming of Christ, the day. So what Paul's saying is, okay, let, let's, let's put the, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work, let's ask the question, when did God begin the good work? Before creation, really. Okay. But let's just say, let's just say experientially, when did God... So theologically, God began that work before the foundation of the world. But experientially, when did it happen? It happened when you got saved. God started that work. Okay. So, Shauna, if God saved you, He's going to make sure you stay saved when Jesus comes back. He's going to bring it to completion. He's not going to like take you halfway, and then when Christ comes back, He's like, okay, the rest of it's up to you. Make sure you're good enough to get up there. He's going to bring it to completion. Now, it's a process, because right now, is it complete? Okay, so, think, all right, so I want you to think about salvation in three ways. This is not in your notes, but I'm going to write it on the board, and you've got space. We have been saved. We are being saved, and we will be saved. So there's a past, there's a present, and there's a future aspect to our salvation. Was there a point in time when you were saved? Yes. Okay, is that a done deal? Is God in the process of sanctifying you and working on you and growing you? Yes. Okay. Are you fully saved yet? You're saved, but are you fully saved? Yes. But have you experienced the fullness of that? When do you experience the fullness of your salvation? Not, only, not until you're in heaven. Okay. So, but in God's mind, how does God see this? Does God see this as, does God see it in past, present, future? How does God see it? God sees it as all one big it's a done deal. So in God's mind, you're already there. So on the day of judgment, on that final day or the day of the Lord, that's when you're going to experience the fullness of your salvation because you will receive your glorified resurrected body at the final resurrection and you will experience the fullness of being in heaven with Jesus forever. That's what he's going to bring to completion, what he started. Other questions? Clear as mud. Does he go away? <laughs> the Bible does not give us enough details about the role of the Holy Spirit in heaven. But if he is the third person of the Trinity and he dwells in us, even when we're glorified, I don't think he'll be taken away from us. I just think it's going to be the fullness. We will be experiencing the fullness of what it means to be spirit-filled with the glorified body. I, I mean, unless, I mean, I, unless the Holy Spirit's only here for earth and then when you get to heaven you don't need any more. The Bible doesn't tell us that. 
Here's the thing about heaven, okay? Nobody's been there and come back to tell you. <laughs> Number three, it hasn't happened yet. Number four, the Bible gives us some information. Does it give us everything we'd want? No. So here's my, here's my question. Your kids, are we there yet? Are we there yet? When are we going to get there, Dad? Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. We just left the parking lot. We got a, 10 more hours before we get there. Okay, we're not there yet. But when we get there, we'll know. And all your questions will be answered. But until now, until you get there, you just have to be like, are we there yet? No. But trust me, when we get there, all of our questions will be answered. <laughs> all right. Oh my gosh, I just did a debate last Monday night. <laughs> it went pretty good. I went back and I, I didn't think it went well when I was in the process of it. I felt like it was very, I didn't feel like I did very good. But then I went back and I listened to it and I was like, I can't think I did better than I. Because then I did a follow-up podcast of all the things I wanted to say. So I did like an hour-long podcast follow-up of all the things I wish I would have said. Um, Tiffany, the word Trinity does not show up in the Bible. So if you were going to go look at a concordance and look back at your Bible and look at the word, Trinity is a made up, not a made, it's a word that came about in the fourth century by, you know, church fathers, um, really popularized by a guy named Athanasius to explain the doctrine that we see in the Bible. So there's a lot of scriptures that teach cohesively that there's one God. But that one God in being exists in three different persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and all three persons are equal and all three persons are eternal and all three persons share the same power and glory. But they have different functions. So you've asked me a huge question and I spent like two hours doing it on Monday night. Um, and I'd be glad to answer, but if you're asking if there's a Bible verse that says, like the best place to go is Matthew 28, 19 and 20. So it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. I'll stop. You guys want to give me five minutes? I'll explain this. Okay. Turn to Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Okay. And I want you guys to be good people that, that went to English class and you know grammar. If you were an English teacher, you'd probably, you'd probably mark off Jesus for not using good grammar. So what does Jesus say in Matthew 28, 19 and 20? Go therefore... Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay. What are we to baptize them in the what? The name of what? Okay. Baptize them in the name. Is that plural or singular? It's singular. Baptize them in the name, singular. But how many persons do you have listed? Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So shouldn't Jesus have said, baptize them in the names? Why doesn't he use plural and use a singular? There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. 
Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. God is one in essence or being. There's one God, one name. But yet within that one God, there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, why, what's the significance of the name? What did God say to Moses in Exodus 3.14 from the burning bush? Moses says, God, who am I supposed to tell them sent me when I, go back to, when I go back to Egypt and I try to get the Israelites to follow me? What am I supposed to tell them is your name? I am that I am has sent you. I am the Lord. And he says, that is my name forever. So what's God's name? I am Yahweh. So in the Bible, God's name is tied to his very essence. So you could almost say it like this. This is kind of a crude way of putting it. But God equals his name. All that God is, is wrapped up in his name. Go back and look at every time the Bible tells you to worship. Oftentimes it says, worship the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord. Why doesn't it say just worship God, worship God? Worship the name. Because the name carries the full essence of who God is. So who, they couldn't even say his name. Now, when Jesus comes along and stands up, what was God's name? I am. Nobody dare say I am. What does Jesus stand up on seven times in the Gospel of John and say? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. Why did the Jews want to kill him? Was it because he was performing miracles? It was for blasphemy, because what was he claiming? How dare you say that you have the name of God? Nobody can dare say, I have the name of God, unless you share the same essence as God. Is the Father the same person as Jesus? No. They're two distinct persons. Who was baptized in the Jordan River? The Son. Whose voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Who descended upon him like a dove? Okay, so you have three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they all share the same name. They share the same essence as God. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, which means they've always existed. And they, they've, there's no hierarchy among them. The Father's not greater than the Son. The Son's not greater than the Holy Spirit. They share eternality, and they share this, this equal power. Now, in function, they differ in function. That just makes sense when you read the Bible. Who predestined us? The Father. Who died on the cross? Jesus. Who was sent at Pentecost? Okay, so three different roles, right? But does that mean that, they, does that mean that they're better than or less than one another? It just means they have differing roles, okay? That's a quick 10-minute treatment on the Trinity. <laughs> Anything else? Amen, he was. Genesis, let me show you Genesis 1. <laughs> you asking a good question, Shauna. Where was the Holy Spirit at creation? I've got a verse for you. 
The first baseball game in the Bible. In the big inning. Genesis 1-1. That's an old cheesy one. He's laughing like he's never heard it before. What? It probably was a vision. Bob the tomato says in the beginning. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Was Jesus there too? Yes, because Colossians 1, 15 and following says, all things were made through Jesus and nothing was not made that was made by Him. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all work together in creation. So you could say, who created the world? The Father. Who created the world? Jesus. Who created the world? The Holy Spirit. Which one was it? Yes. <laughs> was it all three? Yes. Are all three of them God? Yes. Are all three of them the same person? No. Are they three distinct persons? Yes. Do they perform three distinct roles? Yes. Does that mean there's a hierarchy? No. <laughs> I wonder when people not believe in the Trinity. Because they be heretics? No, I'm just no, I'm just no, I'm just I'm just I'm just joking. Why do some people not believe the Trinity? There are various reasons for that, uh, Tiffany. Some there, I mean, the guy that I debated, um, Dr. Tuggy, is a convinced evangelical Unitarian that believes the Bible and believes in Jesus, but has a very different view. You guys came out of Mormonism that definitely don't believe that. Jehovah's Witnesses have a different... So depending on the group, there's different views. Um, ultimately, the majority, and I say majority because there's been pockets that have the majority of the church for the past 2,000 years has held to the doctrine of the Trinity the way that we believe it because we see it from the Bible. Y'all ready to call it quits? Let's pray and, and uh, go home and enjoy the rest of your evening. Father, thank you for this great passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8. Um, it, 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 lightens, it enlivens my heart to know that nothing in all the universe can come between uh, me and you, Lord Jesus. Your love for, for, for us is unconquerable, and uh, nobody can bring a charge against us. So, Lord, help us to live in the freedom of that. Help us to live in the joy of that, especially as we approach Christmas. Help us to just bask in your love for us. Give us that peace that passes understanding. Give us the joy of the Lord as our strength. Uh, give us hope of our future and help us to uh, just experience your love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.